Pushkin. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Usher is one of the few R&B acts from the '90s who's gone on to become a global superstar. And if you ask him today how it all happened, he'll tell you he manifested it all as a kid back in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Usher and his mom moved to Atlanta when he was just 12 years old so he could pursue a career in music. His first big break came in 93 when his song Call Me a Mac was released on the Poetic Justice soundtrack. Shortly after, he was signed to LaFace Records and first found mainstream success with the release of his sophomore album My Way in 97. Since the beginning of his 30-year career, Usher sold over 65 million records worldwide. He's also starred in the Broadway musical Chicago, been a coach on The Voice, and recently added a Las Vegas residency to his long list of career achievements. The Vegas show, which sold out all of its 2022 dates, was just extended to include 15 more shows in June and October. As you can probably imagine, Usher is a busy man. I caught up with him on Zoom for today's episode in between a vocal lesson, meetings with his team, and his beautiful kids pressing for his attention. During our chat, Usher explained why conflict has always been a big inspiration for his songwriting, especially when working with producer Jermaine Dupree, J.D., on his 2004 classic album, Confessions. Usher also talks about how elder statesmen like Quincy Jones have helped him maintain a level of sophistication throughout his career. This is Broken Record, liner notes for the digital age. I'm Justin Richmond. Here's my interview with Usher. Hey, hey. What's going on? How you guys doing? Good. How you doing? You know, I really I really do wish I could complain, but I would sound like a damn fool. <laughs> <laughs> One, because I don't think anybody would care to hear that. Two, it's a waste of time when you always have such precious moments, right? That's right, man. You can either use it to complain or you can use it to compel, right? And to propel, man. You got a lot going, man. A lot going on. That's right. Since 14, I remember you busting out, killing it. And now, man, we're about 25 years later, and it's as if you're as busy as you've ever been, man. Tell me about what's going on. It's crazy, man, considering I'm only 30 years old. I mean, I've been doing this since I was five. (laughs) (laughs) Man, it's been a lot going on. Actually, a lot of really great things. A career, obviously, that's been, you know, constructed over all of this time and all of these years. But more than anything, a celebration over the last few years. Uh, in Las Vegas with my Vegas residency as I go back night after night listening to the songs and kind of reliving some of the emotions, obviously the choreography and all of the things that come with it. But more than that, man, it's spun an excitement that I needed. Yeah. You know, I think all artists need a bit of motivation and rather it's an audience or either just the love and passion of what you do. But being in front of a live audience really, you know, kind of reignited my passion and the energy, which is part of the reason that I'm now dropping music. And also too, in the process of putting out another album, working on other products and other ancillary things to what I do, 
culturally, you know, if you see the way I dress or if you see the products that I'm using, whatever it might be, all of those things are really a product of a career, man, that has been built, as you said, over 20 years. It's crazy because I don't feel it. It's, it's honestly, you don't realize how older you are, I guess, until you think about your children. I have 14 and a 15 year old. So I'm like, OK, apparently I must be a bit older. <laughs> But I'm not feeling like uh, I'm losing a beat because rather I'm playing, you know, football or basketball or any of those things with them, I'm keeping up. <laughs> That's right, man. The kids keep you young and old. It's a little bit of both. They keep you wise. That's what I will say. Kids, they will challenge you. And at the same time, they will give you purpose and reason. Yeah. You know, you think about the things that matter. It's that time that you have with them, them finding themselves that becomes more of a priority. You know? Yeah. The new album... Where did that energy start to come together? The energy of working on an album uh, started a few years ago, and there's been, you know, some hiccups that obviously have caused, you know, me not to just put music out. One, the pandemic kind of sent everybody into like a holding pattern, and then just, you know, deliberating over, you know, just the process of analyzing, right, what expectations are out there, and you just kind of get to a place where you're like, you know what? This is what it is that I've, I've been working on. This is a an offering, you know, rather I'm talking about things that I, I obviously can relate to because I went through them or either you can relate to because you're going through them. But, you know, now I'm ready to share. I'm ready to share the music. I'm ready to share the emotion. I'm ready to share the creativity. Some of the things that I picked up over the time that I've been making this album, now I'm ready to share uh, what that is. I made a directorial debut with uh, a song that is really only a snippet at this point, uh, Glue. But I I have to say that a lot of it has been spun as a result of my Las Vegas residency. When I did that, it just, again, it just reignited, you know, my passion and my, my connection to my audience and also to my connection to my music. Were you as backwards looking before you started the Vegas residency? Were you kind of... Yeah. Typically in a mode of looking back at your career and thinking about different albums and, and, and eras, or did this kind of help you to that? Las Vegas specifically has always been about celebrating the songs that you've had from the past. For me, it was a little bit of that, but it was a celebration of a genre, celebration of music because R&B in that capacity hadn't really been there. You've had a few artists, you've had, you know, Mariah Carey, and also to that few, you know, more new recent artists that were working in Las Vegas, like Bruno Mars and Anderson Pack. But that culture of R&B music and live performance in the way that I do it, it wasn't there. So I don't know if I ever looked at it as looking back. I looked at it as, let me go back for a second to remind you of what mm. this level of performance and entertainment is ultimately about. And the fact that this culture doesn't exist here things that I shared on stage, you know, I mean, I don't know if you've ever been to my show, but I take you on a complete ride through Atlanta, through black culture. There's, you know, certain hues of, of like, you know, jazz and obviously live music and the idea of like being in this impromptu moment or improv that happens, you know, these unexpected things and unexpected guests that might come out on the stage. All of those things are part of what an R&B show has always offered in time. So it gave me the opportunity to do that. And then experimenting with other things like skating on stage. And I just I just really, I had fun. I don't, so I, again, I didn't look at it as looking back. The music from the soundtrack of my life, which is the songs that are hits, they take you back. But I'm moving forward yeah. in terms of how 
introduce this to you and how immersed you are in this experience. You don't feel like you're going to a show. You feel like you're having an experience. You don't feel like you're watching a live experience, you know, that is just singing and lights. No, you are completely immersed from the moment you walk into the theater to the moment that you leave the nightclub. You're completely in my passion. You're in the passion of what it is that I've created, both musically and also to uh, as an experience. I love that it's uh, such a uh, a send up to like R and B, such a celebration of the genre, man. Because you know it's funny. I, I I was having a conversation for the podcast with Babyface a couple weeks ago, and it dawned on me through talking to him that the era that you came up in the '90s really was the era of like R and B just being the mainstream popular music of the day, man. You know, whereas at some point it was race music. At some point, it was segregated to black charts. By the '90s, man, when you guys were what you guys were doing with LaFace, it became like a driver of the culture. Yeah. Well, I, I'll say this: was it more relevant because it became defiant, and things and genres that were established, like hip hop, became more relevant, and then the mixing of R and B and hip hop together made it feel dangerous. I'd say that, but it was dangerous way before, and it was those other cultures of music or genres of music if you want to call them that, that were bastardizing in ways. You know, this incredible thing called jazz. Jazz is the creation of all things, man. All things are musical, rather it's rock, rather it's ideas of classical things, right? You think about how R&B was established. It was jazz. And then from that, all other things come, in my opinion. I think that there was a formal way of listening to music, which is orchestrated, and that's a different practice. But the things that you feel, the emotion, the storytelling, that's jazz. And rather through the 30s, 40s, you know, and then making your way up into the 50s, 60s and 70s, R&B was kind of on the back burner, but it was always supplying. Jazz was always supplying to all of those other genres. Yeah. So in my mind, I take ownership of that for those people, even though we were racially segregated and maybe black, you know, performers were not celebrated. They couldn't even walk through the very places that they were performing in. So, yeah, I think you're right. You know, through the 90s, R&B had a moment where it was more relevant than others, and it felt dangerous. Rock and roll performing on it felt dangerous. If you look at EDM and, and all of those other things, hip-hop, it felt dangerous. So there's a sophistication that R&B had and has always had, that popular music or popular genre has been able to adopt but it ain't never went away i think that it's always been there and so long as you hear those those hues of what is jazz those hues of what is blues those hues of what is soul music then that shit is r&b that ain't what you think it is it's it's not the genre that was claimed it's the inspiration that was provided you know what i'm saying <laughs> We'll be back after a quick break with more of my conversation with Usher. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
We're back with more from Usher. You're right about like R&B having this sort of dangerous feel to it too in the 90s. And uh, it was almost an accident because you get discovered by L.A. Reid and get signed to LaFace. But because L.A. didn't exactly know what to do with you in the beginning, you get sent to go work with Puff. And it's like you kind of get immersed in a, you kind of have this dual world happening, man, between the R&B that you aspire to do and and now you're hanging with Puff and and even kind of more dangerous R&B cats like Devante Swing, kind of more edgy cats, you know? Yeah. How was that moment for you, man? It seemed like real, like the stars aligned to have that moment happen for you, man. Yeah, before you get to like Devante Swing and New York's contribution to R&B and hip hop, you got to go to Parliament. You got to go, you know, those guys. You got to go to, you know, R&B was, was dangerous much earlier than that. And my working with Puff was you know, a matter of L.A. Reid's vision to see that the entrepreneur that Puff was was going to grow. You know, until L.A. Reid introduced the world to Sean Puffy Combs, you didn't know nothing about Bad Boy. You didn't even understand what it had to offer, which meant, you know, you might have even glassed over, you know, what he did with Jodeci and Uptown Records. So I think it was really the sophistication between L.A. Reid's helping people like Puff to be able to find his light or Dallas Austin or Jermaine Dupree or any of the guys that he had hit records with or Rico Wade with Organized Noise. All of those things, that was a matter of sophistication and L.A. Reid's blending of the two worlds to make it dangerous. Yeah. Jodeci was hip hop. It almost looked like a rock band that was R&B. Yeah. You know, Mary J. Crunch was and has always been, you know, this incredible soul singer that was just pouring her heart out. You know, I'll be sure you know, Heavy D, all of those guys from that time that was setting a standard. There would be no Shaggy and all of those guys if you didn't have a Heavy D. So when I think about what I gained from uh, working with Puffy and being in New York City and spending an entire year with him making my first album, it gave me all the fuel that I need to be not only the creative, but also to the innovator that discovers talent and knows how to develop it as well using it for myself or either helping them find their way. There was something so fundamental about his creation and his idea of branding. It wasn't just about being a singer. You could be a great fucking singer. That don't matter. If I don't feel like I'm getting, I'm, it's dangerous dealing with you and it's like, hot, man, why am I looking at you? Why do I care about you? I, I learned all of that from the school of Puff. And then from there, it became relationship and it became the life story and understanding where the person was and what their views were and what, you know, choices they made, how they dressed, you know, what type of shit they got into. And it, it became something far more than just listening to the music. You fell in love with the artist. So I wanted that. I'm like, okay, great. So then we didn't make a hit album together, <laughs> but <laughs> and we had a hit record on it, working with Devante Swing, you know, Man, believe it or not, being around Biggie earlier in the days when he was being introduced, Craig Mack, Total, being in New York City, like going to Mount Vernon, being, you know, and, and being under the, the wing of Heavy D and being able to see how you move and work with these genres, work, work with like hip hop and R&B together. All of those things, I, I gained all of that. Now I left and after that made my way, came back to Atlanta, worked with JD and we made incredible music, incredible music together that now serviced all of what I know about being an artist. But yeah, a lot of hit records came out of that. My Way, 8701, Confessions, and we kept going, and we are still going. But um, 
Yeah, I think that the one thing you might be overlooking is the danger. And also, too, the sophistication that L.A. Reid had to create a blend, right? Yeah. Because that man had insight. That man had the ability to see for real before everybody else saw for real. That man had the ability to see, you know, Jay-Z and make him an executive that now we respect as a businessman because he saw something more. His The sophistication of understanding how to grow Black entrepreneurs and Black creatives to a place and lift them up is what I think happened with L.A. and really made what we celebrate as a culture in music. Where do you think your sophistication came from? Because it, it just feels like you had it so early, like from the beginning, like even though the first record wasn't a hit record, it's like you came just ready-made. Well, ready-made is in the work. My work ethic is where, it, that's what makes a difference. I learned the skill of being in the environment of people. If you want to be great, you got to surround yourself around great people. L.A. Reid, Sean Puffy Combs, Jermaine Dupree, Dallas Austin, you know, working with the greats. You know, and then creating really incredible, amazing one-offs. Like, with, you know, we did records with Pharrell for the first time. But being able to have access to these guys. And I look at my, you know, all of the records and the things that I've been able to create. So I got a really, really dope clique of people who have been a part of my legacy. It ain't just one person. It's an entire world of of people who, who, who have all of these different views of R&B and hip-hop. And the way they play with it and the way they manage make things it's like it's like nothing else that i you can't you can't compare it to anything else man you really have multiple worlds of music colliding all through your catalog really and cats like early and cats at interesting points in the career like when you're working with jimmy jam and terry lewis like you got them at kind of like a real interesting point in my view and it's just your catalog's crazy you asked where the sophistication comes from the sophistication comes from you know the gurus like jimmy jam and terry lewis like L.A. Reid and Babyface. You know, those are the guys who were like, they were like the, the Oracles, man. They were the, they, they're like the Jedis. They, 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 they made you understand what it was to be an artist and how to make things last. Being able to have ships like Quincy Jones and then, you know, the young Jedis like, you know, like Jermaine Dupree. He's Atticus, you know what I'm saying? Like just, yeah. When did you first meet Quincy Jones, man? I first met Quincy, um, I walked in a, a Tommy Hilfiger, it was a Tommy Hilfiger show in New York City. It was me, Aaliyah, I think it was Eve, it was a ton of relevant artists at that time. He had us walk in the show. And that was the first time that Q kind of put his his crew together. So we were his crew for the night. And uh, from that spun a really great relationship, a friendship. He's been a godfather to me ever since that day, you know, and, and my conversations with him, believe it or not, were not about music as much as it was, what is your contribution to life? He turned me into a philanthropist. He began to help me understand that you, there's much more of a responsibility to kind of lay groundwork and remind people that it's not just about music. It's also too about opening your eyes or the world's eyes to things that need to be addressed. You know, advocating for things that you think, you know, do matter and will matter for you know generations to come and even in for the current time but yeah a great relationship so that sophistication you know it comes from those relationships relationships with the guys who've been here before the elders the guys who understand you know it is it's odd in this time because everything's so young right and everything's so vibrant and everything's so defiant but really man our elders are the ones that matter they got something to teach us and we really do learn from listening to them so you got to listen to the OGs. 
you know, they, they are the gatekeepers and they make the difference. Yes, there is a new frontier of, of people who are just speaking out for how they feel and, and being loud about it. But sophistication, man, longevity comes from listening to your elders. You want to make it last forever, you got to listen to your elders. Listen to the ones that, that, that have been here. Even if you think what they're telling you ain't relevant to what you think or what you feel right now, they got something to share with you. And that that sophistication and longevity comes from their, their well of knowledge, man. It's beautiful that you were ready at such a young, tender age, man, just to, to accept that wisdom, man, and listen. Cause, you know, and, and then also not to take what they tell you, incorporate it, and also find your own way and implement it your own way, man. Because certainly looking at your catalog, looking at your career, it's a totally unique path that you took. Their commitment and their dedication is what I saw. And I become them in time. I don't know. Like I said, I'm only 30 years old. You know what I'm saying? So <laughs> over, over time, you know, hopefully I'll be able to share, you know, that information, that ins- that wisdom with the artists that are coming. Speaking of Quincy, is there any truth to the idea that Tevin Campbell's second record, I'm Ready, some of those songs are supposed to be written for you? Now, many people have said that. No, Tevin Campbell's songs were Tevin Campbell's songs. And my songs were my songs. The reality is, I think L.A. Reid and Babyface were kind of going through a transition when they worked together and when I first signed as an artist. So I probably didn't get a chance to receive, you know, the the, the love and the, the benefit of what Babyface offered my first album. But I later on became great friends with him. I just seen him in Atlanta. You know, he's still an OG. I love him. And rather he was writing songs for me, he still was a motivation. I still looked at Whip Appeal and was influenced by that. Matter of fact, the song that actually you know spun it all and started it all for me was a song that he wrote. He and L.A. Reid together wrote that record, End of the Road. End of the Road, yeah. By, by Boys and Men. But I'm ready. Those songs, they belong to Tevin Campbell. What I did with Puff and my first album, it, it was what it was. I did not get that record that I wanted, my first album. When I listened to Can We Talk, I felt slighted because I was like, damn, I wanted that record. I wanted a record like that. I wonder if that song was for me. Nah, it wasn't. I think it was always Tevin Campbell's song. And um, I know that, you know, Face, he was going through something, I guess, at the moment with LA. And we just didn't work together my first album. That's it. That goes to like again it being sort of serendipitous that you get to work you get to be on the face and have a lot of what comes with that, but then also kind of get to kind of go your own route and go work with Puff and you kind of got the face plus more in a lot of ways, which was I imagine must have been freeing. It was out of my control. I would have wanted to work with Babyface. They were just going through something that wouldn't allow it to happen at the time. But yeah, it's. It's a manifestation. I remember being in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and me and my mother talking about going to Atlanta and potentially meeting L.A. Reid and Babyface and and signing to their label. That's why we came to Atlanta. For me, she came to Atlanta because it was a you know, it was an elevation from Chattanooga uh, and an opportunity more opportunity for her as a uh, as a woman and also to her employment at the time. But for me. It was a true opportunity to meet some executive and maybe turn this talent into something that would take care of us. Because I, I was not taking no for an answer. In my mind, I knew I would I would perform. Like I had a red dot on where I wanted to be. 
I was performing and reading Babyface's songs. Rather, it was Bobby Brown or Boys to Men or any of the other artists that they worked with. And Rocksteady was on repeat, you know, <laughs> by the whispers for my mom. For my mom, so I was always listening to L.A. Reid and Babyface's production. I didn't realize it. Yeah. But I finally made it to Atlanta, and I didn't know who L.A. Reid was. I just knew that they had a hit record on the radio, and I loved singing it. And if I could get people to pay attention to me, maybe I could get to them. And it happened. It was a manifestation. I called it into existence. I said it, and we we went after it. And me and my mother, we made it happen. We're going to take one last break and then be back with more from Usher. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. We're back with the rest of my conversation with Usher. What do you think happened between making a really great first record that honestly I think still holds up as one of the great records of that early 90s R&B era. But what happened, do you think, between then and My Way, where you kind of were able to create a hit record? I think, first of all, Puppy was ahead of his time in terms of what he created with my first album. That would ultimately become the staple of what R&B artists in my age group would go after. So he was way ahead. I think it just... It might have been a little bit too mature. And and now looking at things, it's like they busting it wide open and that pussy wet. You know what I'm saying? It's it's crazy type of shit that they say on right now. Which hey, it, it's an interpretation and you should be able to say whatever you want. Wet ass pussy and all that other shit. But, you know, I think can you get with it was a bit that was a bit much for a fifteen year old to say, Can you get with it to a girl? That means it's a sexual thing. But, you know, I think he was just ahead. He was just ahead of the curve. I think that he got there before everybody else did and was willing to push me. And so long as I was willing to allow myself to be produced as an artist, that I would get something valuable. Now, going back and listening to those songs, they're way, way better than I could even understand at the time. I miss that, that Devontae Swing production. There's no songs on the radio that sound like any of that stuff. No. What he was creating and what they were working on you know, Timbaland was doing those beats, man. Like, there's no music that sounds like that type of R&B, even to this day. And as great as R&B is, nothing is, is great like that. That man was creating something that was amazing. What was it like being in the studio with Devontae Swing, man? If I could even remember, because I only saw so much, and obviously my focus was on performing and singing. Yeah. I wasn't really paying attention to the type of things that were going on. But he was a star. And something about living and breathing and being the star at all moments is what I saw. When I watched him work and when I watched him go over to the piano, I watched him turn the knobs when he directed me how to sing, when he walked over to his car, when he directed how he wanted his you know crew to produce or either work on songs, because it wasn't just Can You Be With It. He worked on a few songs on the album. I was just so impressed with the star that he was. How he... You know, how, how just how he carried himself. I just, he was a rock star, man. It was, it was like, 
that dude is just super duper freaking cool. And then you got Jodeci in the background. Literally, KC is singing backgrounds on Can You Get With It. I'm like, yo, who am I? What have I manifested to be able to have KC and JoJo here listening to me perform in the booth? You know what I'm saying? And also to singing backgrounds on my song. It was out of this world, man. At what point did you, working with JD, realize Confessions was going to be Confessions? In other words, that it was going to be such a, like a personal record. When me and JD lock in, we lock in. You know, we become one in that moment, right? Rather, we're talking about things that we as men sit and, and talk about. Rather, we were talking about things that he was going through or things that I was going through. I think there was a, an aha moment between he and I. Because we, we, the album title was called Real Talk when we first started. And it was all about, that was like a catch tone, you know, a catch phrase at the time. Everybody was like, Real Talk. So I was like, let's name it that. We named it that. And that was the motivation. Like all the conversations on this album are going to be real, like complicated things. Rather, it's dealing with the emotional complicated, the complications of emotion, or rather, it's dealing with the complications of love and what happens when you, you know, you're in a toxic situation or you have a girl on the side or you're in a relationship and you're trying to figure out how to balance as a man, you know, when he and I lock in, it becomes something special. So confessions as a title or as a song, it really just happened organically. You know, we were just living and talking and living with each other and, and trying to find a way to write the songs of what we were living through, you know? talking about dangerous that record really felt dangerous in a different way man because it felt like harkening back to like marvin putting it all out there like in the like when he was going through his love troubles in the late 70s and just i don't know that there was records r&b records 2003 2004 that felt as personal as that man that felt powerful even as a kid i mean i was a freshman in high school when that came out and i was like it just felt i was like yo this is different well by the way as a young boy right you don't necessarily have a lot of songs that you know, speak to the emotions that we feel. And if they are, you know, maybe it's disconnected from, you know, the reality of the facade that we as men have to put on. You know, I don't want to be emotional. I don't really want to let you know that my heart is broken or I'm really broken in this moment. We always found very unique ways to be vulnerable. And that was the point. It was like, no, let's talk about the things that are complicated. Let's talk about the complications of like passion and love, man. And make it all right for men to listen to it and women to respect it because it's articulated in a way that's clear for them to know what we're dealing with. Yeah. You know, and I necessarily, you know, like what we're saying. And I and I think the nineties kind of found this way of doing that. It was art there were artists that did it other than JB, like Donnell Jones. You know, being in, in love, when you love someone, you just don't treat them bad. Now I feel so sad now that I want to leave. She's crying her heart to me. How could you let this be? I just need time to think where I want to be. That's a conflict. Like living in this place of conflict is is what I think we were really focused on with confessions. And every time me and JD worked together, you know, and it became a really a practice of all of the art that I created. I make that. Like, what is that conflict? You remind me of a girl that I once knew. You don't have to call because I'm out with my homies. I can't, uh, you know, I'm going to be all right. We broke up and I'm cool. I'm going to keep it moving. I got to get back on my feet. Confessions. I got a baby on the side. You know, <laughs> you know, I don't mind. 
you know, you know, I'm looking at a girl in a strip club. Like, I don't mind that you do what you do. I ain't got no judgment for you. I mean, you dance on a pole and they don't make you all. You know what I'm saying? All of those, th those things of conflict, like that, you got it bad. C climax. I've reached the climax of this relationship. I, I know it's not going to be more than sexual. I get it. And I'm, I'm, I'm letting it be what it is. You got it bad. Let it burn. These are things that were real. I, I can remember, you know, feeling the emotions of like, you know, I'm out of control. I cannot deal with the emotional, like internal burning that I'm going through. Like, I can't stop crying. I can't stop what I'm feeling. That's like a burning sensation. We wrote a song called Burn. So living in or finding ways to articulate conflict is, is what is in those songs and what, you know, was in Confessions. So just to wrap things up, you're working on a new record. Do you still find inspiration in conflict or where do you find yourself finding inspiration these days in terms of songwriting or emotional? A little bit of both uh, is what I feel in, in my song making. Yeah, as a man, I'm going to always be conflicted because there's passion and we're kind of working against the natural nature of men. It's like, I want to be in love. I want to be happy. But then also, too, I'm going to sabotage myself because I'm passionate. You know, I want to be happy, but I've been so unhappy for so long that I just end up sabotaging myself because that's just what I'm accustomed to, toxicity in, in life. And by the way, it's not just men. Women are going through this shit, too. It's a human condition. It's a human condition, and it's a human experience. What we are all doing is having a human experience. Music provides an opportunity to jot it down, to make it last forever to listen to it and continue to think about where you were and maybe get something from it. Rather you like, okay, I acknowledge that I got this problem. I got this issue. Now I got to get past it. Or either, man, I'm going through that right now. All right. Well, what's on the other side of it? You got to first acknowledge it and, and deal with it. Sit with it. Don't just go, go get another love or go, go, you know, buy another thing or go and run away from it. Go put your attention in, in time somewhere else. No, you got to sit with it. But that conflict, yes, is still there to this day because I'm human, you know, even if it's just a thought, you know, sometimes we need a little space to be able to find that. Sometimes we need to slow down and sit with discomfort. Maybe sometimes we need to find balance. And I'm happy that I've been able to be that balance in music to be able to help people get through that. Absolutely, man. Thank you always for, for finding that in your music and not being afraid to be vulnerable because you've helped a lot of people process a lot, man. A lot of different things, a lot of different emotions, good and bad and in between. So appreciate you always, man. And, and sorry I have my math wrong up top too, right? It's 15 years you've been in the game, <laughs> about 30 now. <laughs> no, but I, you know, I claim all of my years, man. I don't look 44, you know what I'm saying? But I'm definitely loving the wisdom that has come with this, this time and, and the celebration in Las Vegas, man, that that I get out of it. The fact that people are paying their hard-earned money to come out there, I ain't bringing you there to disappoint you. I'm going to give you an experience and you're going to have a celebratory moment, whether it was the beginning of my career or rather it's the current moment that just makes you enjoy the process. Come, come to Las Vegas, come enjoy it. Be on the lookout for new music because it's coming. And uh, man, I thank you. Thank you for this moment to be able to share Thank you for this moment to be able to uh, just talk about that thing as a God-given gift that I get to share with that audience every night. Yes, sir. Can't wait to see you out in Vegas. I'll be out there in June. And thank you, man. Man, thank you.
Thanks again to Usher for jumping on Zoom despite his busy schedule. You can hear all of our favorite Usher songs at brokenrecordpodcast.com. You can subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash brokenrecordpodcast where you can find all of our new episodes. You can follow us on Twitter at Broken Record. Broken Record is produced with help from Leah Rose, Jason Gambrell, Ben Holiday, and Eric Sandman. Our editor is Sophie Crane. Broken Record is a production of Pushkin Industries. If you love this show and others from Pushkin, consider subscribing to Pushkin Plus. Pushkin Plus is a podcast subscription that offers bonus content and uninterrupted ad-free listening for $4.99 a month. Look for Pushkin Plus on Apple Podcast subscriptions. And if you like the show, please remember to share, rate, and review us on your podcast app. Our theme music's by Kenny Beats. I'm Justin Ocean. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.